There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Alarmy. Check out Alarmist on Patreon for ad-free episodes and bonus content. Here's a preview of our Guest Alarmist series, only on Patreon. Like, what is that instinct that made you run to the bathroom? Shame. Oh, 100%. I was, I felt so ashamed. <laughs> this was like, it was, she was like an older woman, too. Right. And she had this, like, You were disgracing her. I, she was disgraced. Like, make no mistake. She, like, if she came in with grace, she was disgraced. Yes. Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now, on to our episode. Each week, we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week, you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is The Aftermath. The Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with guest expert Jerry White. Jerry is a British historian who specializes in the history of London. He's the author of multiple books, including London in the 19th Century, A Human Awful Wonder of God. Let's hear what he has to say about the sinking of Princess Alice. Hi, Jerry. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Rebecca. So I would love to start with some context about London in the mid-19th century. Uh, how did the Industrial Revolution impact the city, and what were some of the changes it was going through? Well, in 1878, London was by far and away the, the most populous, largest, most famous city in the Western world. Um, it was growing very fast. It was an industrial city, although not sort of heavy industry and no great 
cotton mills or anything like that, but it was a, a city of small workshops with some much larger enterprises along the river itself. It was the greatest port in the world, too, and the busiest port. So the, the Thames was spectacularly busy. And in the 1870s, it was growing as fast as any time in its history. About 90,000 people a year were being added to the population in the 1870s. So it was a boom town, really. It was, you know, a, a place where people went to for work, young people from all over the provinces and from beyond. Um, you know, came to London for work. So it was a, it was a really bustling, noisy, crowded, smelly. <laughs> um, and and the concept of health travel uh, was, I believe, popular at the time. What what was that, and why why did people people seek it out? I think that um, the important thing to realize, I suppose, is that this time, people were getting a little bit more leisure in their lives than they'd ever had before. And so the content, the, the, uh, the idea of traveling somewhere for a day to the seaside or along the river for a trip, you know, for a day out, um, the weather was meant to be good this day and, you know, people took advantage of it. And it, in essence, this was a, a pleasure trip, which people thought, well, you know, that would be relaxing. It would help their well-being and sense of, um, you know, just enjoyment of life, really. I don't think there was a massive health um, literacy, really, at, at that particular point in time. I think this was just something that people wanted to do just for the enjoyment of it, rather than thinking they were definitely doing themselves good. Um, because, you know, as we all hear, I mean, the river from time to time, as you got nearer the sea, was very smelly indeed. Mm. Um, so there was a sense in which, well, you had to stomach certain things in order to get the enjoyment out of a day's pleasure trip on the river. I think that's the way to look at it, really. And what was the uh, can you give us some background on the on the river thames what at this point what was it being used for and um how had it been uh, changing during this this time period and and what was the final destination of many of the people who had boarded the ss princess alice yeah um well the river was london's lifeblood um it became this famous huge city because of the river. Um, I mean, it's a, you know, London is 2,000 years old. It's a, it was a Roman port. And the river at that time too, you know, even the time of the Romans was massively important because that's where London's wealth came from. And London's, you know, the river had never been busier. It was getting more and more ships in. And really, it was the world's busiest port until New York overtook it around about 1916. So this is a working river. It's at any one particular point, you know, there would be hundreds of vessels on, on the river, most of wow. them small, most of them small, e even barges, you know, with, um, uh, which, are which are 
taking coal or bricks from one part of London to another. Uh, and so there are hundreds of vessels on it at, at, at any one time, not all of them very large. But yeah, it's a very busy working river. You know, there's no question of that. And yes, what was the location that um, the, the Princess Alice would take its passengers to? Yeah, well, it, it took them from a pier in the centre of London to um, Sheerness, which is a town on um, at the end, really near the, near the sea. It's where, you know, the river really merges into the sea in the estuary. It's 42 miles, I think, from Sheerness to London uh, by water. And so it's quite a, you know, it was quite a trip. And I think they, people left at six in the morning and were expecting to be out, you know, for all day. They wouldn't get back till, oh, you know, 10 at night. So, you know, that sort of, it was, it, it was, it was a lengthy trip and it stopped to pick up passengers at other places along the river. Um, quite famously, it picked up passengers that evening of the 3rd of September from Pleasure Gardens, um, quite near, well, just a bit further down river from where the accident happened, a place called Rocherville. Uh, Rocherville was, um, you know, quite important Pleasure Gardens on the river where people would go and walk, have tea, have, you know, maybe a glass of wine, that, that sort of thing. It was um, quite a destination for a day out from London. Hmm. Can you break down the, the two ships that were involved in, in this collision? Um, what were their sizes? What was their size difference? And, and what, would they, what were they used for? Yeah. Well, the Princess Alice herself, I mean, she was named after Queen Victoria's third child, um, who very sadly died just a few months after the accident. She was only 35. She was the um, Princess of Hesse. She married a German prince. Oh. Um, and she died in December of 1878. But at the time, the Princess Alice was named after her. She was a very famous royalty, you know, figure of royalty. The Princess Alice herself was quite, uh, you know, qu quite a decent-sized paddle steamer, the sort of paddle steamer that, you know, Americans had on their riddles too. And um, it was designed for pleasure sailing. Um, it was something, I mean, actually, the, the figures about her size vary, although everybody agrees she was 219 feet long. But her weight was not, really significant. It was about 250, maybe some more tons. That was fully laden. The Bywell Castle, um, which was the, um, the other vessel involved, was much larger. It was a, a steamship, a proper steamship for ocean sailing. Um, it was destined to go on a, visit, on a voyage to take coal from Newcastle in the north of England to Africa. Um, and it was sailing out of the river where it had just been having some repairs done, I think, in a dry dock in London. It was a much larger ship. It was only about 50 feet longer than um, the Princess Alice, but it was wider, 50% wider, and it stood very high in the water. Um, it had a raised forecastle at the front. It was difficult to see 
what was immediately in front of the ship. Um, and survivors of the, of the crash remember seeing this enormous ship bearing down on them. It was much higher than the Princess Alice herself. Um, and so, you know, about probably 1,400 tons. So some four or five times the weight um, and tonnage of, of the Princess Alice. Now, who who were the passengers that had boarded uh, the Princess Alice? What, yeah, I know they were going to the, the Pleasure Gardens. What was their purpose of travel and what, what did mainly consist of? Yeah, well, the passengers were, were out for the day on the river and they were, you know, it was a day's sort of entertainment and pleasure sailing for them. They were mainly women. Um, we know that there were probably about 700 passengers on board when she was involved in the collision. How many had sailed with her from six o'clock in the morning? You know, it's, it's difficult to learn, but we don't know. Um, but we do know that going down the river, she picked up more passengers. And coming back up the river, she picked up passengers who'd been to the Rocheville Pleasure Gardens, who had gone to Gravesend for the day out and so on. Um, in terms of, say, the class of the passenger, I mean, it's very, uh, it, there, was a, there was a first class lounge and deck area um, so that people who paid a bit more and uh, didn't want to mix with everybody else um, had a special place on the ship. But most passengers were not in first class. They were in ordinary sort of steerage class. And I think they'd have been mainly the wives and children of artisans, clerks, you know, that sort of lower middle class, upper working class sort of, you know, tranche of people. Um, but we do know that there were some first class passengers because one of them gave a very moving account of the crash and seeing the enormous ship coming towards them and so on. Um, so that, that was the sort of, you know, mainly women. We don't have a breakdown precisely, but everyone said mostly it was women on board and there were a great number of children. One of the passengers who survived said he'd never seen so many children on a passenger vessel before, on one of these pleasure steamers before. So we know that this was a, a rather sort of exceptional number of people and the balance was very much towards women and children. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash alarmist. And can you walk us through the actual um, accident as it happened? Uh, what were some of the mistakes that were made and, and what did the crash look like? Yeah. Um, the events themselves are sort of slightly obscure. People had different memories. Even, you know, watermen on the river gave different accounts to the inquest and so on. Um, and they and no one completely sort of agreed about what had happened. And everybody's experience was sort of, you know, they they had their own experience and they, you know, there's some sort of difficulty really in pinning it all together. But we know that as the Princess Alice was sailing back towards London, um, at a point in the river where it bends, it's the River Thames is a very sort of loopy and bendy uh, river. And at a point called the Devil's Elbow, which is one of the which is a bend in the river, um, opposite more or less Barking Creek, where a little tributary comes in on the north side. The Princess Alice was steering towards this Bywell Castle, this very big coal ship, which was coming out of London 
to go up to pick up coal in Newcastle. So it was leaving the river at the same time as the Princess Alice was coming in. They were both on the south side of the river. And um, a great deal of evidence was taken about where whether the Princess Alice should have been on that side of the river, uh, whether, you know, the um, the Bywell Castle should have done more to avoid her and, and so on. And there was a discussion we'll, we'll come on to, as it were, who was to blame and, you know, or the sorting of that out. But for, you know, very unlucky reasons, they were both on the south side of the river at the time. And it was pretty clear that although the Princess Alice was not making much water, it wasn't going very fast. And seeing this ship ahead of it, it actually seems to have slowed down. The Bywell Castle was doing about five knots, which is not, not a great deal, but it was making way. And um, the tide of the river was flowing back to the sea. So the Bywell Castle was coming with the tide and the Princess Alice was going, this paddle steamer was going against it. For whatever reason, the ships did not avoid each other. Neither ship took steps to avoid each other. And it was the passengers, you can imagine, those people on deck, um, and the captain of the Bywell Castle, a man called Captain Grinstead, could see this ship bearing down on them, but didn't take themselves evasive action, and nor did the Bywell Castle. The people on the paddle steamer could not see anyone on board the ship because it was so high in the water and loomed too far above them. Um, the Bidewell Castle struck the Princess Alice more or less amidships in the middle of the ship and cut her in half. Uh, and cut her in half very quickly. Uh, the ship began to sink immediately. And some people were trapped in, a, in the ship. They were, they were in lounges and so on, having a cup of tea or whatever. Other people were on deck. Um, but at that point, the Princess Alice had no, um, nothing could say, nothing could say. Um, there was a, a dispute at the time of whether the Princess Alice was sturdy enough for the job she was doing in the river. Um, but the Board of Trade Inquiry after the event said she was built sufficiently strongly. But the Bywell Castle just sailed through her like a hot knife through butter. It was as simple as that. And the ship went down almost immediately. And were there any accounts? Oh, what were some of the accounts of those who survived and, and, and how, how, what was that experience for the passengers? Yeah. There was, a, there was a very interesting account which was published at the time um, of a man who was in the first with his wife on the first class deck, and they see they saw the whole thing happen. Um, neither of them could swim; uh, they found themselves in the water, and uh, people described the scene around the ship as it went down of these hundreds of people in the water, mainly women. Their dresses billowing with water and caught into the air, sort of keeping them up for a bit. Um, 
he, this man, as soon as it happened, people on the deck of the Bywell Castle began to throw ropes over the side so that anyone who could catch hold of them or would. This man who gave his account uh, held on to his wife. She said to him, don't leave me, as she was going, you know, as they went into the water. Neither of them could swim, and, uh, but they sort of bobbed up out of, out of the water. He had hold of her, and he said her face was going black, but he still had hold of her. And he was able to grab one of the ropes thrown over the Byral Castle. And within a few seconds, I suppose it must have been, but within a minute or two, there were other people clinging onto the same rope. Oof. And I know. Ropes were thrown over the Bywell Castle. All of them had people clinging to them for dear life while people were drowning around them. The Bywell Castle launched, I think it was three boats, um, and they picked up survivors. And another boat, a boat was, you know, quickly came to the rescue. But the boats, three or four of them, only picked up about 40 people. Wow. Now, this, this is a position where you know, something like 700 people are in the, in the river. Wow. You know, possibly, possibly fewer, but certainly um, 650 people appear to have drowned in wow. that in the short time after with the, with the river black with bodies, basically. 544 bodies were picked out of the river that day and the day after. Um. Some were found when the wreck of the Princess Alice was raised. Some were found still in the ship. But others were never found. Um, and about the, the coroner estimated between 60 and 80 people, the bodies were never found. Or they were, you know, in the river and just stayed there or were washed out to sea and not found. So the total number of deaths was about sort of 650 to 60. The man who gave the account, clinging onto his wife and holding onto the rope, they were eventually picked up by one of the boats. Oh, wow. And they were saved, or were both saved. Wow. Quite extraordinary. You know, the mortuaries were full of dead children, some of them babes in arms and so on. Mm. It must have been one of the worst things to have witnessed. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, no, it was... It was it remains the worst maritime tragedy in inland waterways in in the UK. By far and away, the biggest accident that ever occurred. Now, we we learned that there once they once the passengers did hit the water, the water was full of sewage. And can you give us some context regarding uh, sewage dumping at the time? Uh, why was the sewage disposed of in the, in this way? And uh, was it typical for boats to steer around this this water? Yeah, um, London had a massive sewage problem. Um, there, there was a a moment called the Great Stink, which was in 1858, when the smell of the river was so bad outside the Houses of Parliament that the members had to rush out to stop wow. them. Well, a, a massive sewerage scheme was built in the 1850s after the Great Stink. So from about 1858 to 
the early 1860s. Um, sewage was stopped from going in the river and massive sewers were built either side of the river to intercept the sewers that previously had just discharged straight into the river. That sewerage system went out to well beyond built-up London. And it discharged the sewage raw into the river at a point where um, it could not come back. The tide wouldn't bring it back. It was sufficiently far out, about 12 or 13 miles down river, that the tide wouldn't bring it back to London. And the tide would, um, as the tide was retreating, the, the tide would take the sewage out to sea. And uh, so that the, the sewage was held in massive lakes, and twice a day, these lakes would be opened so that the sewage could flow into the river and uh, the tide would take it out. And that was the system that was in place for about nearly 20 years before the Princess Alice um, sank. But in those 20 years, London grew. And so London was growing down, you know, on all sides including East London, so that Londoners, as it were, were getting closer to the stench of the raw sewage being put into the ponds. Um, it was, yeah, it was just, that was the way it was done. And it was a fairly typical way for, you know, industrializing nations to put sewage into the river. Um, you know, it was done all over the world. Uh, that you, you would take the sewage away from the houses, you would put it in the river, and the river would take it out to sea. I mean, uh, you know, um, London was so massive, it didn't work like that in the, uh, in, in the central district. So it was, it was taken down river. Um, that system was much criticized after the Princess Alice disaster. Um, the tide was moving out. The sewage was in the water at the time that the Princess Alice was struck. Oddly, survivors don't mention it, or the accounts that I've read from survivors, they don't mention this as being, you know, particularly sort of, I mean, I suppose they were just all trying to stay alive. It was the water that was killing them, but nothing else. Um, but at the time, Certainly, there were letters in the press about this was, you know, this disgusting habit. The technology was there to treat the sewage and make the, to, to divide the effluent into a fairly clear water and into sewage sludge. You disposed of the sludge and the water would go into the river without polluting it in this, you know, horrible way. That's what eventually happened. Um, from about 1885, so a few years after the Princess Alice disaster, not by any means caused by it, but really caused by the fact that London was growing and growing and growing, would eventually get to where the sewage was put into the, into the river. Um, the authorities at the time treated the sewage and, and did exactly that, so that it was chemically treated, the clear water was put into the river, and the sewage sludge, the solid matter, 
was uh, shipped out to sea in barges. Special sludge vessels were filled with this stuff, and it went into the North Sea, and it was dropped in the sea. And that was really the position, um, certainly until the Second World War. In fact, I don't, I'm afraid, know when the sludge vessels stopped. I think it was well after the war that uh, the sewage was entirely treated. Technology got better for treating the sewage and, and so on. And um, there were different ways of, of um, dealing with the sludge. But that, uh, so that what was happening in, at the time of the Princess Alice was pretty normal for, you know, most Victorian cities, certainly in Britain, I suspect elsewhere. You know, I suspect this was happening in the Rhine, on the Danube, and, um, you know, in, in New York and, and other places too. This is where the happened everywhere. But it was, it was eventually remedied to be a, a much more satisfactory thing about 10 years after really, uh, the Princess Alice. And uh, the investigation that was done after the crash, what, what did the authorities come to conclude? Well, they came to conclude basically that um, the rules of the river required ships to pass on the right-hand side so that their left-hand sides were together, port to port, as it were, which meant that the Princess Alice should have been further to the north than she was. She should have taken the north side of the river, and the Byrell Castle was right to take the south side. But this rule of the Thames, which had been established from about 1872, was not widely known. It was not widely publicized. And even, you know, Thames watermen who had their livelihood on the river every day didn't know of the rule's existence. I mean, it's extraordinary, really. Wow. And so... Um, but the Princess Alice was criticised. Her captain was dead, couldn't defend himself. He was not particularly um, uh, singled out for criticism, but the, the, the vehicle was not properly steered, they said. Uh, it was steered by a helmsman who didn't know the river very well at mm. all. And so basically, most faults was pins on the Princess Alice. Mm. Uh, the Bywell Castle captain, a man called Harrison, was effectively exonerated. They all had, all the survivors, including the mates of the Princess Alice, who survived, had their licenses taken away from them, so they couldn't sail again until mm. the, the Board of Trade Inquiry had sort of looked into it. All of them got their, their um, licenses back. My own feeling is that, you know, you can't rewrite history and it's difficult to judge these things so many years after the event, but the inquest jury also felt that the Bywell Castle was to blame to some extent. She was under the control of a pilot, a Thames pilot, a very experienced man, and it, the pilot is in effective control of a vessel when you know, a vessel has a pilot on board. And it's Extraordinary to me that they didn't do more mm. to ensure that they had a safe passage, even if they were, as it were, right to keep to that side of the river. You'd have thought that something could have been done to have avoided the pleasure steamer, which was just in the wrong place. I mean, that was 
I think how the Bywell Castle would have seen it, that it was in the wrong part of the river and mm -hmm. wasn't going um, on the right side to go past the Bywell Castle. Wow. Um, I mean, you know, it's all dreadful, but at, at the end of the day, to pin it all on the princess, Alice, I think, was disproportionate, really, compared right. to, you know, that the blame should have been shared. It's a well, scene of, you know, and of course, the, the rules of the river weren't well known. That obviously happened, you know, after the, the Thames Conservancy Board, which had jurisdiction, took steps to make sure that everybody knew with notices and so on. But at the time, nobody was clear in their own minds what should, you know, it was always, well, rule of thumb, you know, you do it this way, I do it that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we'll make way for each other somehow, you know. But it, a most ghastly accident. This leads me to my last question. Uh, unfortunately, we're running out of time, but we like to ask our guest experts this. Uh, at the end of the day, if you had to pick, if you, Jerry, had to pick a person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the sinking and the accident uh, of Princess Alice, who or what would that be? I think I would put more blame on the Bywell Castle and the people in charge of them, the pilots and the captain. Um, it was such a large vessel. Um, and really, it should have had better lookouts and should have really thought, what on earth are we going to do to get around this? Little paddle steamer, which is in the wrong place. So that's, you know, but I think the Bywell Castle could have done more and should have done more. Jerry, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And uh, for our listeners, we ha uh, head over to Patreon for our aftermath discussion. If you'd like to hear our post interview discussion and final verdict, head over to Patreon and subscribe. Your support is greatly appreciated. Check out our show notes for a link or head over to patreon.com slash The Alarmist. And stay tuned because next week we're discussing Super Bowl 38's halftime show controversy. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST. 